This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. This is a filmmaker with almost no real talent for coherence, originality, or purpose, and in spite of his insistence on audience secrecy, his overly contrived plots are easy to figure out before the beginning of the second reel. That's Rex Reed of the New York Observer. And how about one more for you? Anthony Lane of The New Yorker. In short, we are watching an old-fashioned exploitation flick, part of a depleted and degrading genre that not even M. Night Shyamalan, the writer and director of Split, can redeem. I finally saw Split. Those are a couple of reviews that I agree with. No spoiler alert. I thought it was terrible. This was a huge comeback for M. Night Shyamalan. It has one of the highest January box offices ever. He made a film called The Visit, which I thought was decent. I reviewed it previously on Cinephile. Split, as I mentioned, came out in January, now available on DVD. I finally saw it. I thought it was awful. I am astounded that I got 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'll give my full review coming up momentarily, but props to Anthony Lane of The New Yorker and Rex Reed of The New York Observer, a couple of film critics with whom I completely agree. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. One-year anniversary in the books. Thanks to everybody who listened and offered their feedback. Uh, Shout-out to Norm MacDonald. We did not talk about him. I thought he was a very good interview. When I look back at the year, I thought Norm was fantastic. So funny. Uh, the comedian's comedian, as one might say. Also, we have this uh, letter here from our number one fan. This is Kathy Leah Grand. I'm pretty sure that sometime over the past year, you and Dan figured out that all the anonymous Scorsese items were from one particular person. Sorry, the movie game way back was a bust. LOL. Looked like more fun online. With your one-year anniversary, I'm retiring as your secret fan because, one, I'm out of ideas. Two, the last two were things you already had, so I'm getting in a duplicate area. Three, you're no, now so well-known in the film world, the gifts are pouring in for big shots. Four, I figure you know it's me, so the facade can end, although it was fun hearing your reaction to the items. And five, I can't figure out how to get Marty to Bristol. I hope in some small ways I help prime the cinephile pump. I just made up that expression. Here's to many more successful ventures for ESPN's own Renaissance Man. Only 17% at Rotten Tomatoes and Maudlin Fair, but a good phrase for you. Kathy Leogram is the one who sent us all those gifts. Can you believe it, Dan? <laughs> wow. All right, Kathy. So she, the latest gift she sent was a bunch of, like, Godfather... I don't even want to call them puppets. It's just like a bunch of Godfather characters. It's so good. So I, I hogged the good ones. So I kept Fredo, which is hysterical, Vito, and there's two Michaels. I gave the other Michael to Dan and Sonny. So it's up to Dan. Either he can keep both, put them on his desk, or maybe we'll auction off one at some point. Uh, that is fine. But Kathy also sent us the Casablanca book, which I previously reviewed. Dan has now read it. Uh, so we're going to do trivia right now. Your chance to win a Casablanca book. It's fantastic. The trivia question, you can answer it at Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. And that is, what is Claude Rains' response? Kathy said she wanted a Claude Rains question. What is Claude Rains' response when Bogart threatens to shoot him in the heart? So if you tweet us that response, you get the book. Dan, what did you think of the book? By the way, the answer to that question is not in the book. 
That's correct. You'll For just... the record, you have to watch the movie to, to know the answer to that. It's not in the book. Right. Um, the, the book was good if you really like the movie Casablanca and are interested in film history. I thought it read a little bit like a textbook at some points. Mm. There were a few interesting chapters, but overall it was a little bit of a bore. But I like what you recognize, which I also found fascinating, the whole refugee angle. There was one really good chapter, and it was about how all these refugees, I mean, the movie's filmed in 1942, so all of these people literally fled Nazi Germany and Europe to get away from the Nazis, Northern Africa as well. So a lot of them were in Hollywood, and a lot of them were extras in the film, and so they kind of sympathized, empathized, whatever it is, with the characters in the film, and everybody loved it, and, you know, it's a worldwide classic. Yeah, there's that anecdote about talking with the bombs in Paris. Gives that sense of verisimilitude, because a couple of the extras even said, hey, listen, this is a little bit too close to home, because we've been affected by this. Uh, but check out the Casablanca book. How did we do on the quiz, Dan? Did we get enough people giving away shirts? We're, we're fairly done with the quiz. I think we got about eight winners. That's as good as we're going to get, I think. <laughs> Uh, feels like it was a few podcasts ago now, but uh, yeah, you know, we, we sent out some shirts. Okay. We're good. All right. So that's good. We have to think of the next venture now. We, we can either ask the department here, the podcast department, do you want to go hats or hoodies for Cinephile next? Any swag that's free, I'm good with. Mm-hmm. So whatever you want works for me. All right. We'll hit up PG. Maybe some hats. That'll be a good call here for uh, for summertime. Coming up here, this is a huge get. Shout out to our man, Carlton Gillespie, coming in hot. From Los Angeles, Jerry Bruckheimer, legendary producer, coming up here on Cinephile. The new Pirates of the Caribbean is going to be coming out tomorrow. We're taping this on a Thursday, so cannot wait to talk to Jerry. Legendary career. You look at his movies, there's a reason he's known as Mr. Blockbuster. He's worth like $850 million. We'll ask him for a loan. We'll ask him to sponsor Cinephile and go from there. But you name it, Top Gun, uh, CSI franchise, Pirates obviously gone in 60 seconds, The Rock, Armageddon, Dan's favorite enemy of the state. So look forward to Jerry Bruckheimer coming up momentarily. Cannes Film Festival is going on right now. Unfortunately, we did not get the invite, but I'll tell you a Scorsese story about his experience at the Cannes Film Festival. And also for the Actors Showcase, we got Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams, his five best films. And of course, three words, the Mark Simon special will be coming up momentarily. Is it Con or Can? I, You're saying Can. I always thought it was Con. I always thought it was Con too. And then I asked somebody in the know, and they go, no, that's just when people try to sound highfalutin. It is actually Can. And I said, really? I said, if I was in the French Riviera, I would go with Cannes. And they said, no, you sound like an idiot. Just go with the Cannes Film Festival. All right. Who knew? <laughs> exactly. There's no wrong answers. Before we get to reviews of Wizard of Lies and Split and Megan Levy, which is coming out June 9th, Dan watched The Comedian. Uh, backstory to this. So of course, I love De Niro. Everyone knows how my obsession with De Niro. Hopefully, you've listened to it, the interview we had here in Cinefile. My boy Puffy hooked up. And he said to me, I want to hear this Billy Bob Thornton interview you guys are raving about. All the past episodes, of course, just go on iTunes. I'm sure on the ESPN app you can find them all and go back and listen to them. So check out the Billy Bob interview, which got a lot of love for good reason. He was excellent. And, of course, the De Niro interview is available there. So previously uh, on the last in the file, I gave the comedian three Maple Leafs. Said it should have been two and a half Maple Leafs. But because I love Bob, I'm giving it an extra half. Dan is the deciding factor. It got 25% Rotten Tomatoes. So who was right, me or the critics? The critics nailed it. One star, one maple leaf, nothing more. It was dreadful. I I mean, I have a whole written review if you want it. Please. I can read it for you, and I will just start by saying, if you notice that I have a reading voice and it bothers you, let me know, because my mother has one, and it kills me. No, I don't I'm like, just use your actual voice. Like, I can tell when she's reading. She, You know, she's a second-grade teacher, so it sounds like she's talking down to me, and I hate it. Shout out to Katie. You do not have a reading voice. So if if you can notice that I'm reading, please interject. By all means, please. Listen, we gave Havens his review of Guardians last time. By all means, you get a written review. Okay, so, I mean, trust me, no spoilers. I know it's actually, I'm impressed with you. It's hard to do reviews without giving spoilers so there are some minor plot points but they're not important at all 
So De Niro plays this former sitcom star who hasn't been able to shake the shadow of his character and his familiar catchphrase, which is... Ali! Ali! Yes. All right, so he's an old weathered stand-up, and he relies on foul, crude jokes and has a penchant for insulting members of the audience. Essentially, he's a bleephole, okay? <laughs> a heckling situation goes bad. He spends 30 days in jail, has to do 100 hours of community service. So he's at a soup kitchen, and he meets Leslie Mann's character. I still can't believe we forgot her name last time. I know. Uh, you can think you called her Heather Mann. <laughs> yeah, no, I said, I said Lindsay, and it was Leslie. That's that right. was very close. You had no idea. Yeah. Okay, so he meets Leslie Mann's character at the soup kitchen. She is whiny, emotionally volatile, and an annoying mess. And she implausibly plays this romantic interest, even though there's like a 30-year age gap. It's like abundantly clear. It bothers me. So they try to make De Niro look super young. They have him with the goatee, yeah. with sunglasses, with leather jackets and hats. I wasn't buying it for a second. He he's, he looks he looks old. They were trying really hard to make him look young. He's actually seventy three. In the one he's scene, he says he's sixty seven. Right. Get out of here with that. Okay. Stop it. So the movie is easily thirty five minutes too long. It's only an easily. hour fifty four, and it's. I would say it's an hour and 54 too long, but you got to have something. 35 minutes too long. Yet the development of the relationship between Leslie Mann's character and Robert De Niro's character happens expeditiously. I like good that good thing word. accelerates very quickly, but the movie is somehow still way too long. So you get Danny DeVito, Edie Falco, and Harvey Keitel. They offer decent supporting performances, but honestly, they feel like they're life support for the film. (laughs) Even their familiar faces can't prevent the film from flatlining in the most abysmal final 45 (laughs) minutes I have endured in years. A A tired and contrived plot point was entirely too predictable. In fact, 10 seconds before it revealed itself, I said, if this happens, I'm going to turn off the movie and then it happened. I finished the movie for the sake of this podcast and this podcast only. But you said De Niro was invested in the role. Yeah, committed. The only thing he invested was the fat check he got for agreeing to do this turd of a movie into his bank account. Gastrobure. One star, one maple leaf, no more. You can hit up Dan Stanzik on Twitter. Give him your thoughts on the comedian, our guest reviewer today. In, in honor of baseball season, as my friend Rob Lemley said, we have designated reviewers. So our, our DH today, Dan Stanzik's thoughts on the comedian. Didn't agree he was committed. DeVito, likability and energy, you'll give me that. Yes. How and about, you, you said you paid $28 for the film. That's correct. And someone got it, probably getting a trivia question, right? So I have to mail it to somebody after this. Good. I would recommend to people not seeing the movie unless someone paid you a lot more than $28 to actually watch it. This is a scathing review. How about Cloris Leachman? She was, she wasn't bad. She, but my very minor role. She was, she was, and you told me about this wedding scene. Yeah. It takes forever. It's terrible. There are some mildly amusing no, lines. His speech is his, great. In his speech. There's my, but like the entire wedding scene is awful. But what? his speech at the wedding, there are a few, like, it's very crude humor. So, like, yes. you and me are like, I, I'm going to laugh a little bit at some of those. Right. The 800-pound gorilla line was incredible. Great line. Um, My brother was overall, six feet tall when he married you. <laughs> but awful. Like, an absolute dreadful, dreadful movie. Patty Lapone, DeVito's wife. She's great. Ugh. Ugh. They're no. partners, not twins. <laughs> That's the review of The Comedian, currently available on iTunes. Oh, man. Let's hope Bob's guy's not listening. The good news is De Niro with a roaring comeback, and this one has been endorsed by many more than just me. 
It's his new film called Wizard of Lies. It's currently on HBO, and it is fantastic. Now, The Comedian was a passion project. He worked on it for seven, eight years. That DVD, which Dan is going to mail out, I actually watched the special features on that. So there's a 30-minute – whoever's going to win that, trust me, you're getting a lot of goodies here. There's a 30-minute AFI interview um, with him and the director, Taylor Hackford, and Danny DeVito and Leslie Mann. And he talks about the fact he did seven, eight years in The Comedian. Jeff Ross was a part of the script. The fact it was really hard work for him because, you know, he's doing all these lines – over and over, you're trying to elicit the same laughs. There's no laughs in The Wizard of Lies. He's playing Bernie Madoff. And I don't know a ton. Dan probably knows a lot more than I do about the Madoff story. I know that he built billions out of all these people who had a lot of money. Uh, but I don't know the specifics of it. And if you're looking for the inner machinations of Wall Street, you're going to be disappointed. The Richard Dreyfus biopic, which was, I think, a year ago on ABC, I think that dealt with more of the victims and so on and so forth. This is more of a character study. But I thought it was exceptional because it just focuses on Madoff, uh, his two sons, and his wife, his long-suffering wife. And welcome back to Michelle Pfeiffer. In semi-retirement, she comes back with a fantastic role playing Ruth Madoff. And the wife and the kids have no idea of what Bernie was doing. And the movie starts out in flashback, which I thought was a good conceit. Normally, I'm wary of that stylistic conception. But this time, it actually worked. It starts out with Madoff in jail. And he's having an interview. And then he's kind of telling what happened. And the movie goes on and on in flashback. And frankly, what, what, the problem that the movies are in flashback, they go too often to present time. Like, just Start the movie in present time and then go back and tell the story. Don't keep intercutting. And thankfully, this movie does that. It's generally told uh, as it happens. But listen, he's, he's literally screwing these people out of all their money. Eventually, the, the money is gone. He's going to just tell the truth. And how does it affect his kids who had no idea? The movie makes that very clear. His wife is completely stunned. And the amount of hatred that was towards Madoff, which is completely understandable because he's just this guy who is the epitome of what everybody hates in this country, which is a rich guy who stole a bunch of money from people. And what's incredible about De Niro's performance is he shows the insidiousness of evil and that this guy was so delusional, he really didn't appreciate what he was doing was so wrong. Now, while admitting he knows it's wrong, like, yep, I took money, there is no money, I made it up, these numbers are all made up, they have no trust fund, etc., he tries to validate it by saying, listen, I wasn't stealing from widows and children, I was stealing from rich people who were greedy, and I was capitalizing on their avarice and the fact that they wanted to be richer than they already were. So they're giving me hundreds of millions of dollars, which is going nowhere. And it's not my fault that they were so naive uh, and so foolish. And it's insane to hear him discuss that because you're like, this guy is a sociopath. And at one point, he's upset talking to the interviewer. He says, they're comparing me to Ted Bundy. Can you believe that? And she says, what do you mean? He goes, that guy like hacked up people. He killed them. He, he, he abused them. He goes, I didn't do any of that stuff. Like, do you think I'm a sociopath? But the movie makes it clear because of the fact that Madoff is so cold and so calculating, so clinical and is evil. He is exactly that. And yet he does not realize the depths of his evil. And the relationship with the kids is profound. Uh, you feel for these kids who, at least the movie makes clear, had no idea. Yet you can imagine when the story was unfolding, uh, the first person who's going to be skeptical and say, yeah, BS. Like you worked with your dad and you had no idea that this was all made up. Like, come on. And the movie really focuses on the vitriol towards the sons and the wife. They obviously could not go anywhere in New York, followed by paparazzi, just hated by people, um, you know, verbal abuse, being attacked by people. Like, you name it. This is what was happening to them. And the movie really tries to make it sympathetic towards the family. At times, maybe almost too sympathetic. My one quibble with the film, and I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs, is it does entirely focus on Bertie and his family. I would have liked a little bit more of a focus on the victims. There's one bravura sequence by the director, Barry Levinson. And welcome back, Barry Levinson. This is a once great director. He won an Oscar for Rain Man. 
who's made a lot of bad movies. Rock the Casbah is Exhibit A with Bill Murray. What an atrocious piece of, you know what that movie was. But Levinson's back. This is his best movie in years. You've got De Niro, Pfeiffer, and Levinson all delivering their best work in decades. And that sequence, Bernie's wife, Ruth, just says, that's it. I can't take it anymore. You're going to go to jail soon. The amount of of, of fire we're getting from people is too much. Let's just take a bunch of Ambien and, and die. Let's just kill ourselves. And Levinson shoots this dream sequence where Madoff wakes up in the middle of the night and he starts getting flashbacks of all these people telling him how they've been screwed out of all their money and how they believe by this. And it's just a beautifully edited sequence. And uh, it really shows that Levinson has the chops of a great director, which he is. And unfortunately, he hasn't shown that as much recently. Um, but Wizard of Lies, currently on HBO. And shout out to my man. Hank Azaria, who is fantastic. He has a small but pivotal role. He's the one guy that knew everything that was going on. He's the one guy that Bernie trusted. And he is what people would call in New York at that time a schmuck. He's a lowlife. He is the worst embodiment of what you think of these these New York shysters. You know, he's got that. He's kind of talking like this. Okay, Bernie, here we get the money. Here we go over here. Put over here. It's it's almost like he's doing Mo from The Simpsons, but he's making him a full fledged human character. And he has one scene in particular, which I guarantee will get him an Emmy nomination for best supporting actor for TV movie, in which they're at the wedding and he's talking about how he's describing. Yes, wait for it. Female genitalia with cars. And he talks about the Honda Civic and so on and so forth. It is a beautifully executed monologue by Hank. It shows his ability, what a good actor he is, how how entertaining he can be, and yet what an absolute scumbag this guy is. And that scene really illustrates that. And once everything starts to fall out of control, um, you know, he's the one guy trying to keep things afloat. But he's he's terrific. I mean, it's a real example of Hank Azaria. Not only is a really good dramatic actor, but, but filling in some comedy as well. So check out The Wizard of Lies, currently available on HBO, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. Uh, a roaring success. De Niro is going to get nominated for Best Actor for the Emmys. And I mentioned Hank. I think the movie will as well. I think Pfeiffer will. I think Levinson will. So it's a real success, real prestige project there for HBO. Off the top, I mentioned Split. What a terrible disappointment this was. So I didn't know anything about the plot. I just know it's M. Night Shyamalan's comeback. As I mentioned, he had made The Visit, which did decent. It cost a few bucks, and it made like you know $20 million, whatever it was. So that was a good success to get him back on his feet after so many atrocities. The Village, The Last Airbender. I mean, there's just Lady in the Water. I mean, it was it was a bleak time there for a night, but he's back. Because Split was a huge hit at the box office. They've already announced they're going to make sequels to it. And it, it really, this is the story. Because, again, like Dan said, I don't like to give spoilers. But I didn't know anything going in. I just know James McAvoy plays 23 different personalities, only seven of which are commonly revealed. But one of the characters is a psychopath, and he kidnaps three girls. And the movie is that. It's these three girls being hostage, and then they're having to deal with the fact McAvoy at any time can be one of these seven characters. And that involves his wardrobe, that involves his mannerisms, his voice, everything. And at first glance, because the movie is just exploitive is the perfect word for it. I'm like, there's a bunch of girls who are like teenagers, and he tells them to remove their skirt, remove their top. And I'm like, this is like... Texas Chainsaw Massacre of a different time without that type of violence, but that same feel of just being grimy and exploitive. And Night, this is what was upsetting to me. I'm like, it is such an unpleasant film experience. You know, Knight tries to posit himself as this Hitchcockian filmmaker, you know, someone who should be celebrating, get more love from the critics. And this time, this movie was well-reviewed. But I thought this was the kind of movie you get from a B-level auteur. Like, this is the kind of filmmaker who just makes this cheap and nasty movie, which is feeding off this guy who's preying on these young girls. And I just found it so distasteful as a film. An unpleasant experience, as I mentioned. Uh, they're held hostage, and they've got to try to figure out how to get out of there because, like I said, one's a psychopath, one's a British woman, and one's a little kid who is incredibly irritating, this nine-year-old kid that McAvoy's playing named Hedwig. And you think, okay, girls, what do you guys want to do now? And 
I would have thought at the very least, if the plot is uninteresting, it's literally that, just three girls stuck and they're trying to get out, I thought McAvoy would give a tour de force performance, right? He's playing 23 different characters ostensibly, but it's actually seven that you see. I thought at least his performance would be great. No, I thought McAvoy's performance was terrible. I would put it up for a Razzie Award because it's like drama class on steroids. He does all the worst indulgences of any character. He overplays all of them. You know, rather than showing any sort of nuance or subtlety between all these different characters, they're so wildly over the top. I don't give him credit for being able to play seven different characters. I think most actors could do seven different characters and do it in a more convincing fashion than he does rather than being so outlandish. Typical night movie. You go, okay, what's the twist? I'm going to hang in there just for the twist. And in fact, compared to most of his movies, there is no big revealing twist. This is actually much more of a straightforward thriller. Uh, I won't give it away because there's a spoiler, but it's a disappointing ending. Uh, I'm really astounded at how much people liked Split because it got good reviews. As I mentioned, a fan seemed to like it, and there's going to be sequels. But I thought it was a unpleasant film experience. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. I mean, it's, it's well shot. It's grimy. But it's nothing that I would recommend. So avoid Split <laughs> at all costs. Get those tweets coming. Cinephile ESPN. Tell me how wrong I am. I know everyone's going to be upset now. But I really was uh, surprised by the success that it en- endured. Jerry Bruckheimer in just a second, but one more review for you. Megan Levy. So this is a movie which is not necessarily up my alley. It's based on the true life story of a young Marine corporal played by Kate Mara, whose unique discipline and bond with her military combat dog saved many lives during their deployment in Iraq. She's assigned to clean up a canine unit after disciplinary hearing, and then she identifies with this dog Rex, who's just a real terror, and she's given the chance to train him. And you say, okay, uh, has elements of G.I. Jane here, female corporal, what she's uh, enduring here, separate showers, a little bit of chauvinism from the other military members. And I am not a dog guy per se, but I can appreciate those who love their canines. And this movie makes you really appreciate what her and this dog did. Over the course of their service, they completed more than 100 missions over in Iraq. You know, obviously, as one of these dogs who's sniffing out where the bombs are, et cetera, uh, it makes you appreciate the courage of her and of these dogs themselves. Um, I thought it was ambitious, yet it was restrained. It wasn't like American Sniper. It wasn't like Black Hawk Down. It wasn't like they were kind of making you, you know, put your face in the mud and the terror and the blood, so to speak. So in that respect, it was not hyper-violent. Not the war scenes were fine. They were convincing. But it wasn't like Mel Gibson doing Hacksaw Ridge or Eastwood, as I mentioned, American Sniper. Instead, it was more restrained. You see what the war is, but instead it focuses on the human drama um, and it does so in a way that I think other filmmakers, particularly male filmmakers, probably would have done so a lot more aggressively. This is directed by a female, Gabriella Calperthwaite, who, uh, whose work I do not know, but I look forward to seeing more of it. Edie Falco plays Rooney Mara's mother. She's strong in a supporting role. Ramon Rodriguez, the love interest, Common plays the uh, military sergeant who's uh, trying to instill in her some discipline. But I thought it was a decent movie. Listen, it's sweet and it's heartfelt, and there's nothing wrong with making a war movie like that. In fact, I think that's more challenging to do that than to just show a hyper-violent, cynical, negative war movie. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. It's in theaters June 9th. Is it Kate Mara or Rooney Mara? I believe you said both. This is Kate Mara. Kate Mara, okay. Yeah, Rooney Mara is the girl with the dragon tattoo, her sister. But Kate Mara, good performance. So look out for Megan Levy. If you want to see a movie about a female uh, soldier and the relationship with her dog, it's coming out on June 9th. And joining us now is legendary producer Jerry Bruckheimer right now on Cinephile. The list of credits is too numerous to mention, Jerry, but I'll just say your movies have made a lot of money over the years. And Pirates of the Caribbean is the latest in all these films that have been so successful. The fifth installment coming out on Friday. Would you ever have imagined this franchise would have the legs that it's sustained so far? Never. 
Never. I mean, it's it's just amazing. Uh, the interest is phenomenal. Uh, you, you can thank the Johnny Depp and some of the great writers and directors we work with and Disney for making it. So, you know, I'm thrilled that we have we have another one coming out this weekend. Along with the widespread popularity of the film, what I think about the franchise, I'm amazed by the fact Johnny Depp was able to break through and get an Oscar nomination for his performance in the first film. And I remember reading about it saying he was you know, satirizing Keith Richards or lampooning him, whatever word you want to use, but he drew his inspiration from him. What is it about Johnny that he was able to make this character so unique? You know what, I, I got to tell you, a lot of it has to do with his daughter, what was going on in his life at the time. He had a... He had a uh, the daughter was a few years old, and they were watching cartoons together. And he kind of uh, latched down to Pepe Le Pew, and he's friendly with Keith Richards. So he combined those two characters to create uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> it's amazing how he's been able to do that, and like you said, have that longevity to it. Um, I want to ask you about so many films, Jerry, but I, I, I'm sure many don't ask you about this one. And that's Farewell, My Lovely. I'm a huge Robert Mitchum fan, and I was going back through your credits, and you produced that film, and that was one of Mitchum's last great films playing Philip Marlowe. What can you tell me about Mitchum in that film? Uh, what a what a great character he was. I mean, this guy was a hard liver, terrific guy, wonderful actor, great to work with. So much fun to work with a legend like that. And you know what? He told the greatest stories ever. Give me one of those stories Mitchum told you. Uh, I, I couldn't say it on air. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, a carouser, as they say back in the day, right? Well, he was the man. He certainly was. And another guy that I think of who is an iconic presence in film, and you were a part of his early work, and that's Paul Schrader. You would not only executive produce Cat People, but produced American Gigolo. Taxi Driver, one of my favorite movies. Of course, Schrader's incredible script there. But what was Schrader like working on American Gigolo? He's a very committed artist. He's very serious about what he does. And, you know, he's a terrific writer, great director, and I was very fortunate to make uh, uh, one of my early movies with him. Yeah, why do you think that movie had such an appeal? Because Richard Gere, I think of, uh, of course, the title track, Call Me. Why do you think that broke through? Well, I think, you know, it's it's a combination of, of, of Schrader's writing and Richard's talent. And also the, the fact that we just hit a nerve, you know, with George Armani fashion and great song by George Maroder and Blondie. I think, you know, it just kind of captured popular culture. No doubt about that. We're talking with Jerry Bruckheimer, Pirates of the Caribbean 5, set to set sail in theaters momentarily. 31st anniversary of Top Gun. I saw on your Twitter you tweeted a great pic of you and Tom Cruise, who's overseas. Tom's got the aviator glasses on. What is it about Top Gun that you think about when you think about 31 years ago, how iconic that movie was? Well, you know, again, it it, it was a, a seminal character for Tom to play and create and you know, aviators are, are the rock stars of, of their profession, and, and Tom captured that rock star quality. Yeah, what is it about? Is it just his charisma? Like, why do you think that movie, like, I think quintessential movie the 80s, Jerry, I think of Top Gun, I think of Tom Cruise. Well, you know, it, it's one of those films that has has gone into the time capsule, which I, which I love. You know, people still talk about it. We're, we're considering making another one, which is really excited. Tom's excited about it. So... So far, so good. I think we might bring another one to you. Oh, that would be awesome. Look forward to that. Uh, my producer, Dan, is a huge fan of Enemy of the State. It's one of his favorite movies. Tell me about Will Smith, Gene Hackman, and some stories from that film. Well, i got to tell you, when you, when you work against Gene Hackman, you got to be on your toes, because he's such a brilliant actor. And Will, you, you know, leapt to the occasion, and he was, he was so excited to work with him. And let me tell you, he... His his performance leaped because of Gene. I mean, he was on the case. It was no fooling around. <laughs> I can imagine the intimidation of a guy like Gene Hackman, no doubt. 
when you look at the landscape of films right now, Jerry, and clearly you have you know, your imprint not only in television, the CSI franchises, but other shows, but also film, there's become this narrative now that the best work out there is on television, the rise of Netflix and Amazon and Showtime, and of course HBO's been doing it for years. What is your counter to that, those who say the, the best work right now creatively is not in the cinema, it's on television? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think there's great movies or Academy Award winning movies, Academy Award nominated movies. So there are a lot, there's a lot of great work being done for cinema. And, you know, television for an actor is, is a great thing for a writer. They only have to do eight or ten episodes and they're free to do movies. But their hearts in movies, believe me. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something special still about the silver screen. It certainly is for me, which is why we do this podcast here for ESPN. As I mentioned, you have had a legendary career, star on the walk of fame. Movies have made a ton of money and are beloved by many. Yet, critics have been critical of some of the films that you've made, you know, Armageddon and, uh, you know, some others along the way. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? You know what? You know, in music, you have critics who write about classical music. You have critics who write about popular music. They're, they're two separate things. You know, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. And critics, you know, the same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. And, you know, that's, that's how I look at it. You've never taken it personally, then? No, well, you know, it, it, I don't read them, so I can't take it personally because I don't read the good ones. Woody Allen once said the good ones are never good enough and the bad ones are devastating, so why bother? <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it as well. <laughs> I, I know on a sports tip you're a huge hockey fan as well. Tell me about your love of hockey. Well, yeah, I grew up in Detroit during the Red Wings' golden years with Gordie Howe and, and Bill Lindsay and some of the great players in that era. And, you know, I came out here uh, in the 70s and about when Wayne Gretzky got here, I think in the 90s, I decided to take some skating lessons. I skated as a kid a little bit and played some hockey, and I've been playing ever since, and I still play every Sunday night and love it. I don't play very well, but I at least get out there and get a good sweat. <laughs> Detroit's still hockey town, then, in your estimation, right? Oh, yeah, it's great. I'm a Kings fan. I'm a Red Wings fan. I'm really enjoying the Stanley Cup uh, run for the for the cup. It's 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 phenomenal hockey. Yeah, what do you think about the the team in Las Vegas coming soon? I, I hope they're a big success. I love hockey, and and you know I, I I root for anybody who puts on the skates and wants to spend money to 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 uh, fund the team. I love that. No doubt. Uh, some of your own personal movies that I've read, you love The Godfather, The French Connection, uh, Goodwill Hunting, The Four Hundred Blows. Uh, what are what, what is it about some of those movies that you think about that are so special to you that perhaps motivated you into this career? Well, you know, one of my favorite directors is David Lean, and he made some amazing movies, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, those are spectacles. They're big cinema. You have to go see them in a cinema. They're great characters, great stories, great themes, and that's what I, I try to do. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that your films are true spectacles. You have to appreciate them as well. On a philanthropic note, as I mentioned, you've made a lot of money. I'm sure you have a lot of money. You've given a lot back, including the fight against multiple sclerosis. What is it about that cause in particular that is so close to your heart? Well, you know, it's it's sad when you see these these poor kids and adults that have it. And, you know, you try to help help find a find a cure for it, and that's that's what we can do. And we were fortunate enough to be in the entertainment business and be successful. We support a lot of different causes, and that's what's so generous about Hollywood. Now, the Jerry Bruckheimer Foundation is certainly doing good things. How about the fact Paul McCartney is in the latest Pirates of the Caribbean? How'd that happen? Well, 
Keith Richards, who had, who had been in a number of them, was on tour, and Johnny is close with, with Paul, and they'd done some videos together. And so Johnny called him up and said, would you like to be a pirate? And he said, sure, I'll be a pirate. And then the rest became history, and they had a blast. They wrote the scene along with Jeff Nathanson together, the three of them. Uh, Jeff's our writer. And they had, a, I had so much fun working on it and then actually filming it. I just dream of the day somebody will call me up and say, would you like to be a pirate? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Practice my R and an eye patch. Uh, last one for you, Jerry, and I appreciate the fact we've been going all over the map here. Beverly Hills Cup. What do you think about Eddie Murphy in that movie when you think about Axel Foley? Uh, I love it. We, we've been working on it for years. I think we're getting closer, and, and there's a new management at Paramount, and hopefully they'll be excited about it as we are making it. Jerry Bruckheimer, Mr. Blockbusters, they call him. His films have been enormous successes, and we really appreciate the time here on Cinephile. Congrats on the latest parts of the Caribbean, and really appreciate the time, sir. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. Appreciate it. Actor Showcase. A wonderful actor, unfortunately, left us far too soon. That would be Robin Williams, who often had a deft touch when it came to both comedy and drama. Thankfully, in this actor showcase, we will not be mentioning such dreck that he exhibited in Patch Adams, Jack, RV, Death to Smoochie, and Toys. We'll focus on the positives, and this is going to be a controversial list. I can already tell. It may not be Bill Murray level, but Dan's going to be upset because missing the cut. Well, I won't even give it away. Let's just go ahead and do five to one. Number five is Aladdin, one of the great roles ever of a voice actor, maybe the best uh, melding of an actor and character playing the irrepressible genie. Uh, he joked about the fact that when he got such rave reviews for it, he goes, finally, I've been acting for over a decade. The best reviews I get, they go, man, you're great as a blue guy. Now that we don't have to see you, you're unbelievable. God, you're good. Friend Like Me still holds up a wonderful song, some of the best animation you'll see. And Robin really brings his, his own force of will to that role. Um, you know, at times he's doing like an Ed Sullivan impression. Like, I don't know how many of those jokes were appreciated by kids, but certainly adults appreciated it. And he's sweet and he's touching. And, and he's the key to the movie, in my opinion. Number five is Aladdin. Number four is Goodwill Hunting, the film that won him an Oscar. He's fantastic, playing the father figure to Matt Damon, a psychiatrist uh, who has his own issues. He talks about um, the scenes where he talks about his wife in such loving fashion, you know, the fact that she has this flatulence issue, but the fact that they could share the memories together uh, is very sweet, and he's convincing completely uh, in the way that he mentors Damon's character and tries to help him, uh, and he does so in rather, like I said, successful fashion because he won an Oscar. Number three is Awakenings, highly underrated movie. He's great in that movie. God, he's good in Awakenings. He plays Oliver Sacks, um, who was an incredibly important doctor who was helping these people. It's, it's called Awakenings because they were comatose, and yet they were awake and functioning, yet they were not responsive. And Oliver Sacks is this guy um, who dedicated himself as a neurologist to trying to awaken them. And Robert De Niro, one of his best performances, Bob plays one of the patients, and their chemistry together is excellent. And this was a real important role in his career. This came out in 1990, directed by Penny Marshall. And prior to then, he'd really been known as this great comedic actor. But Awakening showed that he could really deliver drama as well as anybody. Uh, his character is so quiet and introverted. Uh, the relationship he has with one of the nurses, because he's just so shy and doesn't want to you know, get involved in any romantic entanglements, is really sweet the way it's done. Um, and he breaks your heart along with De Niro. Awakenings is number three. Number two is Insomnia. He had this stretch where he really started playing villains. Uh, One-hour photo I thought had its moments, although it was a little bit silly, especially the ending. But Insomnia, he's fantastic. Um, I've mentioned how much I love Christopher Nolan's Memento. And, of course, The Dark Knight is great. But Insomnia, for me, just a cut below those is a excellent thriller by Nolan. 
Uh, again, good chemistry, Pacino and Robin Williams together, whereas Pacino's character is just so haunted and, and bleary-eyed and fatigued. He just can't get a nap because he's there in Night Mute, Alaska, where there's only sunlight three hours of the day. Robin Williams plays the stone-cold killer, and he said that one of the appealing aspects of the character is he wanted to just play him so still. Because, you know, you often see these homicidal maniacs who are so over the top, but he wanted to play him just so quiet and so still and so stoic. And the fact that he's just beating in this girl's head, and that's who he is, and a guy that you would not expect. He's just some author in this you know, remote area. Really well done by him. And number one, good morning, Vietnam. Good morning, Vietnam. Rocking from the Delta to the DMZ. Uh, he's awesome in this movie. Barry Levinson, again, maybe a high point for him. He won the Oscar for Rain Man, but previously in 1987, he and Robin hooked up with Good Morning Vietnam, much better than toys. Um, but I, I, I think the perfect illustration of Robin Williams' gift for both comedy and drama. Those scenes where he's riffing and he's this DJ in Vietnam who the troops love but the suits do not is as good as it gets. He's so entertaining. He's so funny. It shows his verbal dexterity and the fact his mind was so unique and the fact he can go in so many different directions. Credit to Levinson for just keeping the camera still and let Robin riff and do his thing. And then the dramatic scenes. Once he finds out that the woman he's in love with and her brother uh, is working for VC and how shocked he is by this and um, you know his reaction to that and how melancholy he is about leaving Vietnam. All those scenes he plays exceptionally well. So my top five for Robin Williams are Good Morning Vietnam, Insomnia, Awakenings, Goodwill Hunting, and Aladdin. Here it is, missing the cut. Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fisher King, and Dead Poet Society. You call yourself the captain, and you didn't put Dead Poet Society in this list. Oh, oh captain, my, my captain. captain. And you brand yourself as the captain? <laughs> you No Mrs. Doubtfire? No Hook? There's no Hook. Hook is terrible. Hook. <laughs> Hook is an awful movie. That's one of the He's worst. He's got some other awful career. ones that are are known that you left off in right. Jumanji and Flubber. <laughs> Flubber is so bad. What dreams may come was also a misfire. Yeah, I, I, I wish we could have a top eight for Robin because you're right. Those movies certainly have their admirers and are well done, but I just couldn't find the heart to squeeze in those. But yeah, Dead Poet Society, The Fisher King, really good. Him and Jeff Bridges, uh, Terry Gilliam, excellent movie, came out in 1990. Robin was actually nominated for Best Actor for that movie, playing this homeless guy who's this real eccentric, and he's going to try to find the Holy Grail. He's on this really inventive quest. That's also a really good movie. But, but what we're trying to say basically is this. Robin Williams is a very talented actor. If you don't know any of these movies, go back and check them out because he had a long legacy when it came to film and memorable roles. Actors in three words. Three words brought to you unofficially by Mark Simon. Let's make it officially by Milk Duds, because I'm clamoring for a sponsor here for Cinephile, and I love Milk Duds. And Dan has said to me, listen, if you want Milk Duds, we can get you Milk Duds. Like, I, I can just make a call. We go, hey, by the way, one of our hosts loves Milk Duds, and we'll send you a box. But I'd rather say that it's sponsored by Milk Duds. I don't think I said that necessarily, but you're hosting Mike and Mike tomorrow. If you say it there. Okay. They're going to send the Milk Duds. Every hour. So by the way, Mike, if Mike, you yeah. throw in some Milk Dud references, like yeah. they did it once with M&M's. We got M&M's for weeks. Okay. Done. Yeah. Milk Duds. You're <laughs> in. Milk Duds are on the house. All right. Three words. Here yes, we go. Sir. First one, Harrison Ford. Number one is grizzled. He's just always a grizzled actor. Number two is Indiana. It was tough. It's either Indiana or Han. It's <laughs> but I'll go with Indiana. Actually, no, screw it. I'm going to go grizzled, then I'll go fedora, because that's a better one for Indiana Jones. That's why I think of him in a fedora. And the third one, ready for this? Overrated. Whoa. Explain yourself. I know some people that love Indiana Jones and love Star Wars and would probably fight you for saying that he's overrated. (laughs) Two iconic roles does not a great actor make. 
and I don't think he has any versatility or any range. I think you he's, can't go. You can't go Yoda <laughs> while ripping Harrison Ford. You cannot do that. He has two memorable roles, and he's great in those movies. But I would posit you could put a lot of other actors in those movies. And they were probably pretty good. Smart Alecky Han Solo. Daring guy with a whip, Indiana Jones, who's good in a fedora. Like, Chris Pratt is now going to do these Indiana Jones movies. I'm sure he's going to be fine. I've always found him to be exceptionally overrated. Because then when he makes these movies that attempt to be dramatic, like regarding Henry, they're awful. Someone's going to tweet about Witness. Witness is a good movie, fine. But overall, I generally find him a little overrated. Okay, Selma Hayek. Spitfire. Okay. Okay. Mexican. (laughs) Of course. And... Uh, Rodriguez, because she works off with Robert Rodriguez. I could go Desperado if you want, or Banderas. I got a, I got one for you. Sure. She was at Cannes, we're calling it. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. the Cannes Film Festival, the mm-hmm. Cannes Film Festival. You know what she brought? Her own mariachi band. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's replace Mexican with mariachi. Mariachi. <laughs> so done. done. Okay, third, Martin Short. I think he's hysterical. I think he's so funny. I honestly think when people say, who are the funniest people alive? I, I, and it does not necessarily reflect it as movies. I've read, Dan knows, I've read Martin Short's book, which is fascinating. As did I. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing? He's yeah. so revelatory about his life and his personal life. You know, the fact his wife passed and then he was asked about, it, I think, on the Today Show or Good Morning America. And he very skillfully avoided it without making the interviewer look stupid, even though he's Kathy Lee. Right, Kathy Lee. Um, but I just think, and even he joked in his book, it should be called, like, Almost Famous. Because he goes, I've always been on the cusp. Like, Three Amigos was a huge hit. Okay, yeah. Uh, inner space, yeah, but I, but I've never been that guy. But everybody knows who Martin Short is. Like Jiminy Glick was a huge hit, but it wasn't a rating success. Critics liked it, but he's never really had that proverbial hit. But he's amazing on Broadway. People tell me if you go see a show, him and Steve Martin do shows. They're touring all the time. Apparently, they're unbelievable. So I think he's hysterical. The second word is underrated by what I'm saying. Obviously, I think he's like I just wish he would have had a, another movie that would be more iconic. And three is Canadian. Nobody prouder that they're Canadian than Martin Short. I was waiting for that one. If you go to Disney World, the Canada exhibit is, of course, hosted by Martin Short, and he just tells all about Canada. He's a huge Canadian. I was there recently. I only went so I could get a little bat blue. <laughs> no poutine there, by the way. Yeah, I know. Uh, fourth, Demi Moore or Demi Moore? Demi Moore, right? <laughs> I was just going to say, the first one should be name, because no one can ever know. Is it Demi or Demi? What is it? I say Demi Moore. Same. Yeah, so we'll go with Demi Moore. So one is name. Just did, did you know any other Demis or Demis? No. So one is name. Uh, two is busty. Go on. <laughs> because, listen, you think of Demi Moore, everyone's like, oh, yeah, striptease. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's kind of what Demi Moore was known for at that time. Uh, and three is Bruce, as in Bruce Willis, famous Hollywood coupling. Okay. Could have got Ashton Kutcher there, too. Yeah, Ashton Kutcher. Uh, and fifth and finally is Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, this one, I'm going to need a third. One, I'm going to go I, with... Uh, I got you. Okay, good. One is Gargantuan, because he's just so tall. If you watch some movies, there's scenes where Jeff Goldblum is sitting. I think Igby goes down, he's sitting. And then you see him stand up, you go, God, he's tall. Like, if you think Tim Robbins is tall, Goldblum looks like he's 6'8". Like, he should have played in the NBA. Uh, two is Fly, as in The Fly, one of his more memorable roles. And what do you got for number three? There was a news story this week that Jeff Goldblum was supposed to be the voice of Siri. <laughs> I guess him and Steve Jobs like knew each other fairly well, worked on something together. Yeah. And Steve Jobs said, I want you to be the voice of Apple, and somehow it fell through. <laughs> he was the original intended voice for Siri. That's incredible. You know how much money Jeff Goldblum would have? If he, I'm sure he's already doing well for himself, but imagine he's the voice of Siri. All right, Angular, fly, or Gargantuan, excuse me, Fly, and Siri. Your three words for Jeff Goldblum. A Scorsese story. 
Cannes, Don't Call Me Con Film Festival going on right now in the French Riviera. One day, Dan and I will get the invite. How about this? Adam Sandler got a four-minute standing ovation. He is creating some Oscar talk for his role in the Myrowitz story, so I look forward to that movie coming out. Sandler showing off some dramatic range. As I've mentioned before, my favorite Sandler movie is uh, Punch Drunk Love, him and P.T. Anderson. I thought he was great in that movie, so I think he has shown the ability to do uh, more dramatic fare along with some comedy. But I don't know what this movie's about, but I just know he got a four-minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. And speaking of Cannes, I think of Marty. And the only time he won the Palme d'Or, and that was for Taxi Drivers. So he's over there in 1976. And Tennessee Williams, who was actually the chairman of the jury that year, was criticizing violence in movies. And he was just going on and on about these American movies. Uh, at that time, this is like, you know, French Connection, Exorcist, Dog Day Afternoon. And he was just, you know, saying that they're too uh, sensationalistic and exploitive, et cetera. So Marty and De Niro and Paul Schrader were like, hang on a second, our film is in competition, and the guy who's running the jury is openly blasting our film because of the violence in the film. We might as well just get out of here. So they hightailed it, and then the movie actually did win the Palme d'Or for Best Picture. And Marty said they were incredulous. They're like, what? Like, did the rest of the rest of the jury must have unanimously loved our film? Because clearly, the Tennessee Williams did not care for it. So... Marty won the big prize, the Palme d'Or, which was pretty cool. They had to, you know, all of a sudden find out they got this amazing honor there. He's always had a good relationship though, with the Cannes Film Festival. He once served as a jury president, which is no surprise. Marty loves foreign films so much. And he was a part of the jury that gave Roberto Benigni's film, Life is Beautiful, the Grand Prix, which is the runner-up award. I can't remember what actually won the top prize that year. But when Benigni won the award and Marty presented it, he went up and started kissing his feet. I mean, if you remember Benini's antics at the Oscars, this should be no surprise when he starts standing up on the chair and I believe Spielberg was sitting in front of him just acting like a clown. He's so entertaining. But yeah, I remember the Cannes Film Festival and Marty announced it. La Vita Bella, Grand Prix. Benini goes up and literally starts to, in his broken English, is telling the world that Martin Scorsese is the greatest director of all time and for Italians, he's someone we all revere. And then he starts kissing his feet. And Marty, of course, is laughing away. But, um, yeah, Taxi Driver. Didn't think they'd win. He did say Sergio Leone, who was a part of the jury, of course, the great director, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all those wonderful Spaghetti Westerns. He had taken De Niro, Marty, and Schrader out for dinner, had said to them the night before, hey, listen, I think your film is incredible. A Taxi Driver is a wonderful movie. But, yeah, sorry about Tennessee Williams over there blasting you guys. But pretty cool. They won the Palme d'Or for Taxi Driver. We've had some suggestions for Scorsese stories. So next time I'll talk about a movie called After Hours, which I've only seen once. I thought it was all right. Didn't make a huge impact Upon me, but I believe Adrian Aldrelti is his name. Uh, he was tweeting me saying, Can you review it? So, yeah, next time on Scorsese's story, I'll watch it again, watch it with a fresh eye, and we'll talk more about that. Thanks again to Jerry Bruckheimer, legendary producer, and for all your tweets as always, tweet us at Cinephile ESPN. We're also available on Instagram, not only on Twitter. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.